0: Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. The Doc Washburn Show streams live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, weekdays, on the Podbean app, which you can download onto your smartphone, that's P-O-D-B-E-A-N, and is available for download at Spotify, Apple, or wherever podcasts are available. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com or call us at 866 609 All right, this is episode 24 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It is Friday, November 12th. Yes, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. Yes, it's obvious. Last November's presidential election was stolen. No, my old employer wouldn't let me say that on the radio. And yes, there's all kinds of evidence out there a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines so this is a really different kind of talk show we're unmasked we're uncensored we're unfiltered you know I, I just came across something I just came across oh and by the way we do have a uh, we do have our first uh, promo video out there on YouTube for the show and I've put it up on LinkedIn on Facebook on Twitter and I hope you enjoy it I hope you enjoy it. So I, I just I just came across something on uh, on Twitter about what the CDC has now admitted. And this is some crazy stuff. Guy I follow who goes by rising serpent. I I don't know what his real name is but he's referring to something that came out of Freedom of Information Act request yesterday. He says, so let me see if I understand this. The CDC knew that there was absolutely no evidence, not one single case ever, of a person who had recovered from the China virus with natural immunity spreading it to anyone else But they still published a study claiming vaccine immunity was orders of magnitude superior to natural immunity. Are you awake yet? Are you paying attention yet? The great reset, right? The great reset. You know, they steal the election. You had a an incumbent president running for re-election who was so popular that there were motorcades miles long celebrating his re-election attempt in deep blue states, in Southern California, in New York City, right? But we're supposed to... Uh, we're supposed to believe that a dementia patient got 81 million votes. So they steal the election. You got the World Economic Forum saying, hey, in 2030, you won't own anything. And you'll have no privacy, but you'll be so much happier. You know what I'm saying? I mean... When, when I say I hope you're paying attention, obviously I'm saying it metaphorically because if you're listening to Doc Washburn show, I'm pretty sure you're paying attention. I'm pretty sure you're paying attention me let me let me do a, let me do a little um, comparison here between Dementia Joe and one of the great presidents of the last century with something like this:
1: To do more to vaccinate the 66 million unvaccinated people in America.
0: We, the people, tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. We, the people, are the driver. The government is the car, and we decide where it should go, and by what route, and how fast. Almost all the world's constitutions are documents in which governments tell the people what their privileges are. Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. All right, there's strong, brother. That is strong. How far we've fallen. How far we've fallen. Okay. Um, and I'm sure we'll have more on that as the show goes forward today. I'm sure we'll have more on that. Uh, but a couple of things I want to get right to that are on the description On today's episode, Tyler O'Neill over at Fox News reporting national school board association coordinated with white house and Biden DOJ before sending the notorious, the notorious parents are domestic terrorist letter. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Let's check this out. Newly released internal emails reveal the National School Boards Association coordinated with the White House and the Department of Justice before sending Dementia Joe the notorious... I'm not going to call him President Biden, I'm sorry. Before sending Dementia Joe the notorious letter that compared concerned parents to domestic terrorists. Emails provided to Fox News show National School Board Association had coordinated with the White House four weeks before they sent the letter. Viola Garcia, National School Board Association president, whom the Department of Education, later named to a federal board, sent a memo to members of the National School Board Association on October 11th, but dated October 12th, providing a timeline of the association's interaction with the White House ahead of the letter to Biden, which the NSBA sent on September 29th. Five days later, October 4th, DOJ issued a memo directing law enforcement to investigate threats to school boards on October 22nd. National School Board Association issued an apology for the letter. At the time, Garcia wrote, and I quote now, concern over the current climate for school board members is also a top priority as disruptions of school board meetings grow and members face growing threats, unquote. That's a letter she wrote according to the memo obtained by parents defending education through a freedom of information act request. More quoting here. NSBA has been actively engaged with the white house department of justice, department of Homeland security, department of education, surgeon general and other federal agencies on pandemic-related issues. In the September 14, 2021 meeting of the NSBA Organization of State Association Executive Directors Liaison Group, they were informed there had been a meeting with White House staff that morning and that NSBA was preparing to send a letter to the president. Subsequently, on September 17, 2021, the interim executive director emailed notice to the State Association Executive Directors that indicated a letter requesting federal assistance would be sent. In response to the letter sent by NSBA on October 4, 2021, the Attorney General announced in a memorandum widely shared throughout the U.S. Department of Justice that he was ordering all U.S. attorney offices and local FBI offices to reach out to local and state law enforcement officials to coordinate efforts on this problem within 30 days of the memorandum. Now, that's all from the letter... Viola Garcia, the head of the National School Board Association, sent to the executive directors of the different states, most of whom have moved to now disassociate themselves with the national organization. But the statement appears to contradict Attorney General Merrick Garland's testimony to Congress October 27th when Senator Dick Durbin, Democrat of Illinois, asked Garland if he had second thoughts following the National School Board Association's apology for the letter. He said that the DOJ memorandum did not rely upon the letter. Quote, The letter that was subsequently sent does not change the association's concern of violence or threats of violence. It alters some of the language in the letter that we did not rely on and is not contained in my own memorandum. That's what Garland said. That's my lame impersonation. Neither Garland nor the DOJ responded to Fox News' request for comment by press time. Another email exclusively sent to Fox News revealed National School Board Association had discussed the issues with the White House for weeks before sending the letter. Garcia and, pardon me, Garcia and Chip Slavin, another executive of the National School Board Association, altered the text of the letter to satisfy the curiosity of White House staff. Slaven wrote in a September 29, 2021 email to the National School Board Association Board of Directors, quote, and talks over the last several weeks with White House staff. They requested additional information on some of the specific threats. So the letter also details many of the incidents that have been occurring. Yeah, it's a threat. It's a threat to school boards and school superintendents if parents show up complaining about critical race theory. Right? It's a threat if they show up complaining about pornography in school libraries. That's a threat. Right? Oh, no, 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 no. These libs, they believe uh, speech is violence, right? They believe speech is violence and violence is speech. Fox News says parents have spoken up at school board meetings around the country protesting harsh COVID 19 mitigation measures like school closures and raising their voices against transgender policies, critical race theory, and other issues. The letter warned that these parents pose a violent threat to school boards, even going so far as comparing them to domestic terrorists. Yeah. Yeah, they did, didn't they? The fallout from the letter has proven particularly severe. Ohio's, Wisconsin's, and the school boards of nine other states have reportedly terminated their relationships the National School Board Association and parents' education rights organizations have grown in prominence since the letter came out. The letter may have also emboldened concerned parents who supported Republican Glenn Youngkin, who won the Virginia governor's race earlier this month. Yeah, yeah, that there may be some connection there. There may be. They're all in on it. they're all in on it just so you know just so you know oh by the way did did i mention that new york reported four times more covid cases than florida yesterday Vaccine pass working so well in New York, so safe, so effective, a public health necessity. The skyrocketing numbers just mean it's working, right? Imagine if they didn't have that vaccine pass system in place in New York, how horrible it would be, right? And you know what? Some people are stupid enough they believe this. Anyway, hat tip to uh, independent journalist, Jordan Schachtel over at Substack on that. I always try to give credit where it's due. A guy I follow called the uh, the Bradford file over there on Twitter this morning saying the same people saying that that Kyle Rittenhouse is guilty of murder celebrated celebrated the cop who shot Ashley Babbitt. Got it? It's all about politics, y'all. It's not about truth, justice, and the American way. It's all about politics. All about politics. Now, you may have heard recently that the FBI, which uh, seems to be a domestic terror organization itself, seems to be the Stasi. That's what they call the secret police in the old communist East Germany. Seems to be the Stasi for the Biden regime. No, 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 I'm tired of that. Oh, the overwhelming majority of FBI agents are patriotic, decent, upstanding, fine American men and women. It's just some of the people at the top are bad. Really? So how many whistleblowers have there been? Well, none. Okay. Okay. Well, then your narrative is rejected. So they uh, they raid Project Veritas journalist's homes, including James O'Keefe's apartment, throw him up against the wall in the hallway outside his apartment. Next thing you know, the New York Times, the New York Times has stuff like this. It says, Project Veritas has long occupied a gray area between investigative journalism and political spying and internal documents obtained by the New York Times. Whoa, 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 whoa. Internal documents obtained by the New York Times. So the FBI is leaking privileged information to you, right? That's against the law, right? right, 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 right? and internal documents obtained by the New York Times reveal the extent to which the group has worked with its lawyers to gauge how far its deceptive reporting practices can go before running afoul of federal laws. The documents, a series of memos written by the group's lawyer, detail ways for Project Veritas sting operations, which typically diverge from standard journalistic practice by employing people who mask their real identities or create fake ones to infiltrate target organizations to avoid breaking federal statutes such as the law against lying to government officials. Okay, so what the New York Times is saying here is they are privy to privileged communications. And by privileged communications, I mean what they're saying right here Right here, is that they have access to a series of memos which violate attorney-client privilege. They have access here to a series of memos in which the attorney for Project Veritas is advising them. This is so blatantly illegal. So the FBI raids Project Veritas journalists, including Project Veritas founder and president James O'Keefe's homes, and then they leak the stuff to the New York Times. Privilege information. Attorney-client privilege. People should be going to jail. People in the FBI should be going to jail. You're telling me Christopher Ray didn't know about this? Come on, man. Come on, man. <laughs> I'm thankful to the great Will Chamberlain, lawyer and co-publisher of Human Events and Senior Counsel at the IAP, the Article Three Project, and unsilenced.org. I'm thankful to the great Will Chamberlain for his analysis of this this morning. He says, The FBI raided Project Veritas on a pretext and is now leaking their privileged communications to the New York Times. This is a scandal. These are classic privileged communications. Project Veritas asked for a legal opinion on potential journalistic activities. That opinion is a privileged communication. No idea what Adam Goldman, New York Times reporter covering FBI and national security, was thinking here. He should be subpoenaed tomorrow and forced to reveal his criminal source. Will Chamberlain continues. He says, I didn't even think about the fact that Project Veritas is currently in litigation with the New York Times. Makes it all the more appalling that the New York Times would be publishing Project Veritas's." privileged communications, if the New York Times has these memorandums, why wouldn't it also have Project Veritas's privileged communications that relate directly to Project Veritas's lawsuit against the New York Times? This is just a massive, massive scandal. Is anybody talking about this anywhere? I don't know. I'm asking hypothetically because I'm not a normal person like yourself. I don't get to listen to a whole lot of other shows because I'm always trying to, uh, to prepare for this one. But this, this is a massive, massive scandal. People, uh, People with the uh, New York Times should be subpoenaed on this and people with the FBI should be indicted on this immediately. But I'm sure it's not a, a problem with this attorney general. Not a problem at all. He's already lied under oath himself. Know what I'm saying. He's already lied under oath. So I'm trying to figure out. Oh, I see. So Will Chamberlain continues here. The New York Times, Delinda Est, I had to look that up. It's Latin for must be destroyed. He says, this isn't journalism. This is straight up theft. He says, hey, Adam Goldman at New York Times, maybe you should have gotten a legal opinion from the in-house lawyers of the New York Times before you went and published privileged legal advice from an adversarial party. Wow. This is uh, it's beyond a scandal, really. It's criminal collusion between a law enforcement agency and a news outlet at the highest levels seeking to destroy an opposing viewpoint in people's lives. People should be going to prison for this. Should be going to prison for this. And I'll tell you one thing. I bet you Dan Bongino will be talking about it. I bet you Mark Levin will be talking about it. The great Sean Davis, co-founder of The Federalist, in response to Will Chamberlain's threat on this, says, the FBI is a corrupt criminal organization that has no valid reason for existing. And that's true. That's true. Now, somebody responded, somebody responded saying, never forget this, after Clinton-Lynch tarmac meeting, FBI scrambled to find and punish source newly released emails show. And this is from uh, almost four years ago. Almost four years ago. And the guy that broke the story, the guy that broke the story, a TV reporter named Christopher Sign, died mysteriously in Alabama a little while back. You know, when you uh, when you cross the Clintons, a lot of times you die mysteriously. Isn't that right? Michael Hastings? Seth Rich? Isn't that right? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. You know, I, uh, did a local talk radio show in Little Rock, Arkansas for seven years and three months. And after I'd been there for a few years, every once in a while, somebody would uh, call into the show, a listener who, who liked the show, and say something along the lines of, well, Doc, I've been listening to you since you first came here, and um, first time I heard you, I thought, well, they'll run him off pretty quick. He says, I'm thankful you're still around. Yeah. Yeah, they uh, have a way of running people off. But of course, I mean, nobody in Arkansas ran me off from that uh, talk radio gig. That was corporate. That was a whole different deal. Nope. No, the Clintons' fingerprints were not on that one. Not at all. Okay, uh, United States Representative Thomas Massey of Kentucky, uh, a guy I got in trouble for quoting a few months before I did get fired on the uh, local talk radio show in Arkansas. He's out there now saying, in December of 2020, CDC falsely claimed Pfizer trial data showed the COVID vaccine was 92% efficacious for those who had evidence of a previous COVID infection. Representative Massey says, I called them and recorded the phone call. They said they were wrong. They still haven't fixed their false claim. Why is the Pfizer CEO silent on this? He surely knew the CDC was and is lying about Pfizer trial data, but he never spoke up. By the way, by the way, Trump was still president when this was going on at CDC, for what it's worth. For what it's worth. Now, Biden's climate czar, John Kerry, had something interesting to say this morning. Here it is, courtesy of Bloomberg. By 2030 in the United States, we won't have coal. We will not have coal plants. By 2035, President Biden has set a target that we will be in our power sector carbon free. By 2030 in the United States, we won't have coal. We- now, once is enough. Once is enough. They want people to starve. They want people to freeze in the wintertime and boil in the summertime, and they don't care. John Kerry. John Kerry, remember, he's the guy that came back from Vietnam and lied about his um, brothers-in-arms. He ran for president in 2004, and they say he was swift-boated. Well, what that meant was the people who knew him best because they served with him told the truth about him. And yet... And yet, Bill O'Reilly, Fox News, when John Kerry was running for president in 2004, called him a patriot. So, I, I don't Uh Wait, what's this? Senator Rand Paul, who's also a doctor, says, read this before submitting to any vaccine mandate for children. Okay. So he links to a thread from uh, Dr. Marty McCarry, Johns Hopkins professor, editor in large, pardon me, editor in chief, at MedPage Today, New York Times best-selling author of a book called "The Price We Pay," and she has a thread around. A new op-ed from the Wall Street Journal called Should You Vaccinate Your 5-Year-Old? And here's what she says. Based on the data, we should not be giving healthy kids a second vaccine dose at a three-week interval, especially boys where one out of 7,000 get myocarditis and one out of 136 of them died. In other words, from the vaccine itself. This is from the uh, New England Journal of Medicine study. Vaccine deaths could approximate COVID deaths in boys 5 to 11 years old with no comorbidities. CDC says 94 COVID deaths in two years, including when Texas was crude and COVID rates were higher, 94 COVID deaths out of 28 million kids 5 through 11. Nearly all likely had a comorbidity, extrapolating that from our prior study, adolescent hospital study, known under coding of obesity, word on the ground, CDC won't tell us number of child deaths in healthy kids. Yeah, I wonder why. Based on the data of kids with no comorbidity, an estimated 0 through 10 kids 5 to 11 have ever died of COVID versus approximately 15 would die from the vaccine, second dose extrapolating from adolescents, the case the case to vaccinate kids with a comorbidity is strong. The case for a second vaccine dose in healthy kids is far from compelling. Forty-two percent of kids five through eleven had COVID as of June per CDC. Likely fifty to sixty percent now after the Delta wave, an indiscriminate vaccination policy in children will result will result in unintended harm. Oh, I don't know that's unintended. Hey hey, 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 I don't know that it's unintended. Population control, anybody? Oh, no, 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 no. no I don't think it's unintended. I mean, Fauci gave money to the University of Pittsburgh to harvest organs for full-term babies. So, you, you know. This indiscriminate vaccination policy in children will result in unintended harm? No, 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 no. Pretty sure it's intended. Anyway, uh, Dr. Marty McCarry, Johns Hopkins, goes on and says, these are self-inflicted wounds to our nation's children. She says, if a child already had COVID, there's no scientific basis for vaccination. Yeah, that's true. Fauci don't care. Fauci she not care. Dr. Rochelle Walensky head of the CDC. She doesn't care. NIH NICE doesn't care. CDC doesn't care. FDA doesn't care. World Health Organization doesn't care. And God knows Dementia Joe doesn't care. If a child already had COVID, there's no scientific basis for vaccination. She says the documented risks of a second dose in the New England Journal of Medicine and from other sources simply do not outweigh the benefits in this subpopulation. That sounds like the exact opposite of everything else she said. Okay, first of all, if a child already had covid, there's no scientific basis for vaccination. Okay, got it. Then the documented risks of a second dose in the New England Journal of Medicine and from other sources simply do not outweigh the benefits. In this subpopulation, it seems like the risks would outweigh the benefits. I don't know. You know, you, you're, you're reading a great thread that makes a lot of sense, and then the last sentence you go, Wait, you're making my head hurt. I don't know. Liz Wheeler, host of the Liz Wheeler Show. As a video podcast, has almost 600,000 followers on Twitter. She says this morning, Project Veritas sues the New York Times. FBI raids James O'Keefe's home. New York Times knows about the raid immediately. FBI steals O'Keefe's reporter notes. New York Times publishes what his notes were. And by notes, she means... Correspondence with his attorney. She says, This is nuts. FBI's leaking O'Keefe's privilege info to the New York Times. Hello, Deep State. That's right. That's right. Don Lemon, one of the dumbest people on television. CNN this morning saying people on the right are making Kyle Rittenhouse out to be a choir boy because he went across state lines and inserted himself into a situation where he had nothing to do with. Where he had nothing to do with? Well, he's not the best in grammar. He says if a black kid did that, how would America feel about that? Yeah, if a black kid was trying to protect a car lot from rioters, from looters, from people destroying property, and then had to shoot three different people in self-defense? I'd be fine with that. See, Don Lemon, CNN, don't try to project your racism on me. Don't try to project your racism on me. I want all law-abiding citizens to avail themselves of their Second Amendment rights. See, this is what the libs always say. Oh, this is what the libs always say. Yeah, people, the Second Amendment guys, they're not going to believe in that when black folks start, start buying guns. Oh, yeah, we are. Oh, yeah, we are. The city I live in, Little Rock, Arkansas, Year after year, more than 90% of the homicides are black-on-black crime. I wish more of those black victims had been armed so they could have protected and defended themselves from being murdered from people who look like them. Oh, yeah. See, there's a guy named George Clinton who sold a lot of records back in uh, the 1970s. He had a couple of bands, Parliament and Funkadelic. They called the P-Funk Mob. And uh, George Clinton was famous for saying some, uh, some pretty intriguing things. And one of them was, fish don't know he's wet. So when Don Lemon looks at a situation through his racist eyes, through his racist grid most natural thing in the world, for him to want to try to project his racism onto other people because that's how he understands how the world works because he's a racist. But you don't have to accept that premise. And I don't have to accept the premise. And we don't. And we don't. All right, coming up in just a couple of minutes, the great... Daniel Harwitz over at the Blaze Media talk about how new study shows more effective immunity from prior infection than in vaccinated among organ transplant recipients. We alluded to it a few minutes ago. Now we're going to get deeper into it here in just a couple of minutes. Because, I mean, this is real, y'all. This is real. All right, now that having been said, if you were as furious as I was when they shoved Obamacare down our throats and lied about it, calling it the Affordable Health Care Act because of how expensive it was going to make your health care, boy, do I have good news for you. Really good news. It's called MyFamilyHealthPlan.com. Now, if your health insurance premium feels like a second mortgage, if your sky-high deductible prevents you from going to the doctor, if your sky-high co-pays keep you from going to the doctor, wouldn't you rather have an affordable health care plan Save 30 to 50% on premiums, personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, no co Did you know this was possible? The website is called myfamilyhealthplan.com. My friend Art Wilborn is the man with a website. And even better than that, with myfamilyhealthplan.com, you can get an insurance plan that doesn't force you to cover things that would violate your deeply held religious beliefs. You don't have to cover abortion and stuff like that. Myfamilyhealthplan.com. That's Art Wilborn's website. He's licensed in Arkansas and Texas, which are the two biggest podcast download states for the Doc Washburn Show. But if you're anywhere in the United States, outside of Arkansas and Texas, he'll hook you up with somebody else he's got a relationship with that will give you the same kind of coverage he can give to folks in Arkansas Texas. It's a win-win. Go to Art's website, myfamilyhealthplan.com, book a free consultation, and Art Wilborn will make sure there are no gaps in your coverage. Save money on your insurance at myfamilyhealthplan.com. You'll be glad you did. All right, that having been said. that having been said let's uh, let's take a look at the great daniel Horowitz over the blaze blaze media new study shows more effective immunity from prior infection than a vaccinated among organ transplant recipients really transplant center university health network in toronto canada demonstrates that even organ transplant patients have robust T-cell immunity from prior infection much greater than those who are vaccinated. Have you heard about this anywhere? This is beautiful. The authors of the study published in the Journal of Infectious Diseases say, and I quote, vaccinated SOTRs mounted significantly lower proportions of S-specific polyfunctional CD4 T-cells after two doses relative to unvaccinated SOTRs with prior COVID-19. Together, these results suggest that SOTR generate robust T-cell responses following natural infection that correlate with disease severity but generate comparatively lower T-cell responses following mRNA vaccination. Now, The problem, of course, is trying to remember that SOTR stands for Solid Organ Transplant Recipients. That's a beautiful thing, man. And it's the kind of thing you're not going to hear in the liberal media. Right? It's the kind of thing you're not going to hear in the liberal media. So that's why you come here. Scott Adams, a guy that... um, the cartoon is for Dilbert, the Dilbert comic strip. Out there this morning saying, Hitler's biggest strategic failure was not making Germany's economy essential to the world's supply chain before he embarked on ethnic genocide. China is showing the world how to get away with that sort of thing. Boy, are they ever. A guy named James Burke responds saying, lack of international effort Lack of international effort regarding atrocities in Xinjiang. Sadly, unsurprising, given credible reports of state-sanctioned organ harvesting in China have been mostly ignored for years. Sometimes there's some coverage, though, some hope. And he links to uh, Forbes.com from July of this year, United Nations Concerned About Organ Harvesting in China. Well... Doesn't look like they're too concerned. I doubt they're any more concerned than uh, LeBron James is. LeBron, don't mess with my blood money, James. That's kind of a long nickname. Can we fit that on a basketball jersey? LeBron, quote, don't mess with my blood money, unquote, James. Huh. Oh, we'll look into that. We'll look into that. So Good Morning America, Michael Strahan on Good Morning America, and he will shill for anybody they pay him to shill for. Now, you remember that um, remember that little boy who's like uh, 11 years old, and uh, he dressed up like a girl? And he, and he uh, went and danced in clubs. And they called him Desmond is Amazing. Yeah, remember that kid? Yeah, he came on uh, Good Morning America, and Michael Strahan was, was clapping like a train seal. Oh, this is great, man. Desmond is amazing. Anyway. Anyway, so uh, Michael Strahan had Antifa Gage Grosskreutz, the one of the three guys Kyle Rittenhouse shot in self-defense that lived. The guy who admitted under oath the other day that Kyle Rittenhouse did not shoot him until he pointed a gun at Kyle Rittenhouse. So, good morning, America, out there saying, quoting Gage Grosskreutz, the sole survivor shot by Kyle Rittenhouse, reacting to his own testimony. Quote, to me, he seemed like a child more upset that he was caught and less upset about what he had done and the numerous lives that he affected. Hey, excuse me, you tried to kill him. But see, that doesn't matter to Michael Strahan. Michael Strahan is getting paid well. He's like, just put the script in front of me and tell me what you want me to say and let me keep doing this job and make a lot of money. That's Michael Strahan. That's Good Morning America. That's ABC, quote, news, unquote. It's a show. They don't care about the truth. They don't care about the truth. As a great... Corcom over on Twitter says, that guy tried to kill Kyle Rittenhouse, had to admit he aimed an illegally possessed loaded pistol at the kid before the kid shot him on the witness stand, and you're interviewing him? Yes, I'm screaming. You know, I read somewhere that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I guess that would include going on television and pretending that a would-be murderer is a victim, which is what Michael Strahan did on Good Morning America yesterday morning, or pretending that it's a good thing that an 11-year-old boy Oh, he's 14 now. An 11-year-old boy is being abused by his uh, stage mother into pretending he's a little girl and dancing in gay clubs for, uh, for adult men. Yeah, Michael Strahan thought that was cool, man. Desmond's amazing. Hey, great. 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 On an unrelated note, turns out now Goodwill is pushing critical race theory through staff training. Goodwill Industries pressuring its stores to adopt critical race theory, theory, critical race theory style training, as part of its diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative. Uh, why does this not surprise me? You know, I remember something that uh, the great, the late great. Rush Limbaugh, Maharishi, Doctor of Democracy, once said, "If an organization, if an entity, is not specifically defined as conservative, it will inexorably, eventually, lean to the left." Man, I miss Rush. I really miss him. All these articles that we uh that we refer to, we will uh, put on our Facebook page. Pretty soon we're gonna start doing uh a, a daily e- uh email newsletter, and that'll be easier because a lot of times I put stuff on Facebook and I'm so throttled, I'm so shadow banned on Facebook that there's no Uh, well there's hardly any interaction when i when i post something when i post something so mark mazzetti over at new york times washington investigative correspondent says, Project Veritas has long occupied a gray area between investigative journalism and political spying, and documents reveal how much the group has worked with lawyers to gauge how far its practices can go before breaking the law. Okay, so they're bragging about publicizing privileged information, privileged content, attorney-client privilege stuff, bragging about breaking the law here, right? So um, the great John Basham, meteorologist, retired U.S. Army out of Texas, says it wasn't Project Veritas that lied about Russian collusion for four years. It was the New York Times. Yeah. Is the New York Times. They've lied about a lot of other stuff too. Oh, okay. So now, Anderson Cooper 360 over on CNN that's a cable access channel that people get forced into watching at the, at the airports. He interviews Gage Grosskreutz who attempts to clarify his testimony and comments on Good Morning America about whether he pointed a gun at Kyle Rittenhouse. The great Jack Posobiec, senior editor of Human Events, responds, Now Antifa Gage goes on CNN and is claiming his arms were up when Kyle shot him. Anderson Cooper physically grimaces when he drops that whopper and his lawyer has to step in to save him. Yeah. So, um... <clears throat> See, Antifa is like the, the shock troop. It's kind of like the stormtroopers, I believe, of this administration. They break all kinds of law. They're violent. And the Biden DOJ looks the other way. Bill Malugan, Fox News down on the border this morning, says approximately 200 migrants have already crossed into La Jolla or La Jolla. Texas, illegally this morning and are waiting to be taken by Border Patrol. More coming, mostly families. We're once again beginning to see huge groups of family units crossing here after a recent lull. He says under Biden administration policy, many of these family units will be released into the United States with either an order to show up to court or a request to please show up in an ICE office at a city of their choosing within 60 days. This has been the case all year. You know, here's the thing. Because a lot of people are like, why are they doing this? Why, why this? Why that? Why, you know? Here's the thing. Um, if you start with the operating principle that Biden and his handlers are trying to destroy this country, trying to take us down, then it all makes sense. Then it all makes sense. The great actor James Woods on Twitter today saying little paper face diapers are just political propaganda at this point. People are forced to wear them so mindless compliance to authority will seem more natural than the vigorous independence that Americans once enjoyed. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Oh, this is interesting. Uh, Michael P. Singer, attorney and author of China's global lockdown propaganda campaign, the mass ball of cowardice and snake oil, how Xi Jinping shut down the world. He's got a new chart out there this morning. From the Financial Times, analysis of data from Johns Hopkins, World Health Organization, UK government coronavirus dashboard, government of Peru, public health France, Slovenian Ministry of Health and the Swedish Public Health Agency. New chart on new confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Sweden and the European Union, and Sweden is real low, and the rest of Europe is real high. And so Attorney Singer says new COVID cases per capita are surging, to all-time highs throughout the European Union, despite mask mandates and strict vaccine pass requirements for indoor activities and travel between countries, except in Sweden, which never had a lockdown and ended all restrictions months ago. Isn't that remarkable? Adam Baldwin says, because the whole damn thing is a scam. Y'all awake yet? Y'all awake yet? Do you ever ask yourself that? Am I awake? Oh, oh, let me go back to Daniel Horwitz. This is from less than an hour ago. He says, if you have a rhino legislator in a red district... With no challenger, even if you can't put together a campaign, just get your name on the ballot. God might bless us with an historic opportunity, but in many areas we have no conduit through which to capture a wave election. Now, this is fascinating because there's a rhino... U.S. representative in my home district, a guy named French Hill, and he first got elected in 2014. And a week after January 6th festivities at the U.S. Capitol, he said that uh, President Trump's rhetoric leading up to January 6th is unforgivable. Right? So he's a rhino. And he proudly voted to keep Liz Cheney, who voted to impeach Trump, proudly voted to keep... uh, Liz Cheney in House leadership for the Republican Party saying she was an outstanding conservative. He's a rhino. And I think he's going to get primaried. And I was just texting to see if I'm allowed to announce who's who's going to primary him. Because, you know, you look at the situation in South Jersey where a truck driver did his own Facebook campaign videos for free to run against the Democrat state Senate president, and the truck driver beat him. He only spent $153 in the campaign, and most of it apparently was in Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> but he did these Facebook videos. You know what I'm saying? And he beat this guy who'd been in there forever. And rhinos may as well be Democrats, you know, again u s representative French Hill, if you're outside Arkansas, you probably never heard of him, but you know he ran on fiscal responsibility and then never saw a spending bill or budget he didn't like and you know the rest was history i wanna I wanna kind of put this whole deal with um Kyle Rittenhouse into perspective. Somebody who goes by Thunder B over on Twitter says, I don't know how to break it to people, but there are large swaths of the United States where hunting and fishing are common and acceptable. They use rifles. The the AR-15 is a rifle. A 17-year-old knowing how to use a rifle is not extraordinary. In these places, Wisconsin used to be one of those places. Is that still the case? I know this is likely very disturbing for urbanites to realize, but a 17-year-old in the Midwest knowing how to use a rifle is not bizarre. Furthermore, there are times of the year designated for hunting, also known as deer hunting season, during these periods. It's not unusual to see people with rifles, especially near areas known for good hunting, you might even see a gun rack in a truck right in plain view. This is so common, you can even buy these gun racks at Amazon. And very young people share these experiences with their adult relatives like this young man. And he's got a picture of a young man who uh, shot a deer with a deer carcass, and the kid doesn't look like he could be much over 11 or 12 years old. He He says, so... So a young man in Wisconsin knowing how to use a rifle isn't the same as seeing a unicorn. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. So I need to uh, I need to share with you what's going on with one particular school board. in a state in which people download our podcast cuz you know that that's 49 states now. Chrissy Clark over the Daily Caller has a story. Scottsdale, Arizona school board member publicized parents' social security numbers. Divorce proceedings, financial records in effort to track outspoken parents. Now I'm no legal expert but sounds like this might run afoul of the law. What do you think? Parents with children enrolled in the Scottsdale Arizona Unified School District were appalled when they when they uncovered the fact that one of the district's school board members had editing access to a Google Drive that included personal pictures and information on a slew of outspoken parents, including their social security numbers, the divorce proceeding, and financial records. Mother Kim Stafford uncovered a Google Drive link when school board president Jan Michael Greenberg sent her an email accusing her of anti-Semitic comments because she had said negative things about billionaire George Soros who is, by the way, evil. Greenberg sent Stafford a screenshot of his desktop, which included a since-deleted Google Drive URL reviewed by the Daily Caller. The Drive was available to anyone who had the link. Stafford shared the link with her friends, including Mother Amanda Ray, who told the Daily Caller she was disgusted when she saw that the drive included pictures of her eight and 10 year old daughters, oh, oh, parents have since dubbed the Google Drive an online dossier. The folders housed within the dossier are labeled SUSD Wackos. SUSD, of course, being Scottsdale United School District. The folders housed within the dossier are labeled S-U-S-D wackos, press conference psychos, and anti-mask lunatics, among others. Included under press conference psychos was a video that shows parents calmly holding signs that read CRT is racist and S-U-S-D we demand transparency. The dossier takes specific aim at the concerned parent group entitled Community Advocacy Network. Administrators and founders of that group's active Facebook page have folders dedicated to screenshots of their Facebook comments, pictures of them with their husbands, and in some cases, financial records. Ms. Ray, one of the concerned parents and leaders of this group, was a top target of the online dossier. The folder has a credit card, deed of trust from Desert Financial Federal Credit Union, her mortgage, information on her Airbnb property, and pictures of her children. Ray told the Daily Caller that her first dust-up with a school board was in January when she criticized Greenberg for making a political rant during a school board meeting that's supposed to be nonpartisan. She feels she's been unfairly doxed by the publication of her information. She said, I'm just a parent. I'm not a public official. Parents have largely been concerned with the school board's handling of mask mandates and their alleged lack of transparency. Other posts detailed in the Google Drive include a PDF with members and moderators in the group's Facebook group, the personal documents that show portions of parents' Social Security numbers, parents sharing pro-Trump signs or Thomas Sowell quotes, and one parent's divorce proceedings. Oh, my. Dossier also appeared to harbor opposition work against Amy Carney, a concerned parent who announced recently she plans to run for the Scottsdale Unified School Board November of next year. Carney told the Daily Caller that while Greenberg had access to the Google Drive, most of the information was procured and posted by Greenberg's father, Mark Greenberg, who's listed the owner of the Google Drive, according to screenshots obtained by the Daily Caller, the elder Greenberg can be heard in body cam footage reviewed by the Daily Caller calling Ms. Ray a lunatic. He also admitted he pulled up to Ray's car on his motorcycle with his license plate covered and said he had a private investigator who's writing down all the parents' license plate numbers. Really? Both Ray and Carney described the Greenbergs as bullies and trolls who do little to quell the real concern of parents. Carney said if parents criticize the younger Greenberg, the dad goes after them. The elder Greenberg has a history of harassing his political opponents. Two years ago, he was unmasked as the anonymous author of a parody website that mocked school board leadership according to a local Scottsdale news outlet. School board member Greenberg denied involvement with a dossier to the outlet Independent News Media when asked whether his father had access to the Google Drive. Greenberg says he's not his father's keeper. He said, I've been sent screenshots of what is done on CAN, the, the group we talked about here, He says, I've been sent videos, and yes, from parents, including my own father. Yes, people send me emails and text messages, but I don't store them, and I don't know who stores them, if that is what you're asking. Scottsdale, Arizona, Unified School District, of course, has remained silent on the issue. Nancy Newman, district spokesperson, picked up the Daily Caller's phone calls twice and mumbled, though she did not respond to any official inquiries. And, of course, Jan Michael Greenberg, 28-year-old, Member of the school board there, did not respond for a request. To a request for comment. How about them apples? Sounds illegal to me. I mean, what do I know? Uh, to quote the great philosopher Norm McDonald, uh, the late great Norm, uh, I'm just a guy. What do I know? So we played you the audio a little bit earlier on the program of John Kerry saying by 2030 we won't have coal plants in america okay well now let's look at the let's look at the alternative shall we let's look at say wind power how much do you know about wind power? I mean, probably, probably more than John Kerry knows. But I would like to, uh, I would like to help you out with this. Because there's a, there's a lot to know. Large wind turbines can cost 3 to 4 million dollars each installed. They last some 17 years but do not produce power on still wind days or even high wind days. They carry 400 gallons of oil at a time. The base needs tons of concrete and steel decommissioning costs around $900,000. And guess what? The blades last forever. Hat tip to Peter D. Clax. So, I mean, not to mention the birds they kill, right? When the wind turbine is in full operation, those things are spinning around. But hey, but hey, they don't care. They don't care. Bloomberg Markets announces the nitrogen fertilizer shortage is getting so bad that farmers won't be able to get what they need for fields in the near future. It's intentional, you know, the supply chain problem and everything, it's intentional. You do realize that, right? Remember uh, Dementia Joe Biden Last year, when he's run for president, announced that Kyle Rittenhouse was the white supremacist in a campaign video before his trial. That's a lie. The campaign knew it. And I hope Kyle Rittenhouse sues Dementia Joe for everything he has. For everything he has. Now, The great Molly Hemingway, or the Federalist, says all the Intel Committee, all the Intelligence Committee Democrats, all of them who worked with corporate media to push a lie that Trump stole the 2016 election by colluding with Russia, all of them refused to comment about the arrest of Igor Danchenko, one of the co-conspirators in the hoax. Just so you know. Just so you know. Now, I don't know if you've heard about 29-year-old mountain bike and national title winner Kyle Warner diagnosed with pericarditis after taking the Pfizer vaccine. But um, he's really sad. He's got a viral video out there on TikTok about it, about how people get angry with him. They get angry with him for just telling the truth about what happened to him. Now, why do you think that is? Have I now become your enemy for telling you the truth? Why do you think that is? The great Murray Rothbard, Do I follow over there on Twitter, says the veil is being lifted and everything is crumbling before our eyes. It's all being exposed. The emperor wears no clothes. This is always going to happen. Eventually it had to. We'll have an historic opportunity to rebuild from the ashes of our corrupt and failed institutions. Well, I mean, I hope he's right. I hope we'll have that opportunity, but I don't know. I don't know. By the way, did you know, um, and U.S. Representative Thomas Massey, we quoted him earlier, did you know he says in response to a FOIA request the CDC literally just admitted they have not documented a single case of an unvaccinated individual with natural immunity spreading the virus. For what it's worth, a lawyer who submitted this Freedom of Information Act request is helping with Thomas Massey's mask lawsuit against Nancy Pelosi. All right, now, i got to play something for you. It's a couple of minutes long. Dr. Peter McCullough, cardiologist and trained virologist. The most peer-reviewed author on the subject of the Wu flu in the world. He's a practicing physician and treats China virus patients in his practice. He's a professor of medicine, former vice chief of internal medicine at Baylor University Medical Center, principal faculty in internal medicine for the Texas A&M University Health Sciences Center, Co editor of Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine, Associate Editor of the American Journal of Cardiology and Cardiorenal Medicine, has over a thousand publications, five hundred citations in the National Library of Medicine, and author of thirty-five peer-reviewed publications on SARS CoV 2 infection. Okay. Now I think you need to hear. I think you need to hear what Dr. Peter McCullough is saying now. And it's uh, about a minute 15, not too long.
1: So here we go. Myocarditis that occurs with the natural infection is usually those sick enough to be in the ICU and it's a troponin elevation only. It's very different than the myocarditis that we're seeing with the vaccines, which we'll get to. Uh, The myocarditis in COVID-19 is mild, it's inconsequential, and it's largely a troponin elevation. I don't want anybody to think that the myocarditis of the natural infection is anything like what we're seeing with the vaccines.
0: Exactly. The vaccine produces the inflammatory type process. Is it on the heart?
1: And the vaccine is directly there. Now there's preclinical studies suggesting the lipid nanoparticles actually go right into the heart. The heart expresses the spike protein. The body attacks the heart. There are dramatic EKG changes. The troponin, the blood test for heart injury with the vaccine myocarditis is is 10 to 100 folds higher than the troponin we see with the natural infection. It's a totally different syndrome. About When the kids get myocarditis after the vaccine, 90% have to be hospitalized. They have dramatic EKG changes, chest pain, early heart failure. They need echocardiograms. If the ejection fraction is low, they need medications to prevent heart failure. So vaccine-induced myocarditis is a big deal. And in children, it's way more serious and more prominent than a post-COVID myocarditis.
0: So they're pushing the vaccine because the money. Money and the power, power and the money. Are you paying attention yet? Again, I ask that rhetorically because if you weren't paying attention, I don't think you'd be listening to Doc Washburn's show. And, and by the way, a couple of notes here. Or as the, uh, the late great Paul Harvey would say, shop talk. First of all, thank you again to the great Dan Bongino for having me on the program a week ago today. Um, our number of downloads last Friday was the best 24-hour period that we have had since we started the all-new Doc Washburn Show live stream slash podcast on October 12th. And Saturday was our best Saturday for downloads. Sunday was our best Sunday for downloads. Monday was our best Monday for downloads. Tuesday was the best Tuesday. Wednesday was our best Wednesday. Yesterday was our best was our best Thursday. I don't know. I don't want to put God in a box, who knows what'll happen. I don't know if today we'll have more downloads for this episode than we did when we broke a record last Friday. Because I mean we had almost a thousand more downloads last Friday than we had for our best day up until that point. But we'll see and we're thankful. Now, another thing I keep on forgetting to mention. We got an email from somebody the other day. Because we had a situation uh, last week in which we were about an hour and 40 minutes late starting the live stream because we had a power outage in my neighborhood. We got an email from somebody saying, hey, uh, can we chip in and help Doc buy a generator? And so we set something up on DocWashburnShow.com where you can become a patron and chip in a few bucks if you want to financially support what we do here. And uh, I just keep forgetting to mention that on the show because I'm kind of busy trying to do the show, and I just I forget to mention things that I, that I should mention. So anyway, if you want to financially support what we're doing, uh, it's easy. All you have to do is go to com and click on the uh, the tab that says Patron. Know what I'm saying? So, anyone, anyway. Um, so, and, and we appreciate. We appreciate. Man, we got a lot of people listening today. A lot of people listening today, and we really appreciate everybody that's, that's checking in with us. All right, now, um, I need to get back. Where, where, where was I? Oh, yes, the great William Jacobson over at Legal Insurrection. And his column, his new column, the drop last night in the New York post entitled the media framed Kyle Rittenhouse and won't come clean. Even after the prosecution case, prosecution's case falls apart. I don't know if anybody else is going to share this with you, but I know it's my duty to share it with you. And so here goes. He says, media malpractice has come full circle in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Kyle Rittenhouse's trial for the shooting deaths of two people and the wounding of another is nearing its end, with a jury expected to get the case soon. The shootings took place as riots, arson, and looting shook Kenosha, Wisconsin, after police shot Jacob Blake on August 23, 2020. The violence fed off the nationwide riots and looting that followed the May death of George Floyd in Minneapolis police custody. From the start, the media misrepresented the Blake case and ensuing riots. They portrayed Blake as an unarmed man who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, subjected to police brutality due to racism. The truth, of course, was far different. After intensive investigation, prosecutors declared Jacob Blake's shooting a justifiable use of force. The Federal Justice Department reached the same conclusion. Contrary to media reports, Jacob Blake was armed with a knife and was shot when he turned in a slashing motion at a policeman within arm's reach. While it wouldn't be fair to say the media coverage caused the Kenosha-Wisconsin riots, the press downplayed the mayhem and ramped up the hysteria, as with the Black Lives Matter riots in Minneapolis and beyond the mainstream media incessantly focused away from the violence despite almost 20 related deaths and more than $1 billion worth of damage. Perhaps the most notorious example is CNN reporter Omar Jimenez standing in front of burning buildings in Kenosha, Wisconsin with the on-air Chiron reading, fiery but mostly peaceful protests after police shooting. The phrase, mostly peaceful, is now a popular Internet meme used to mock distorted mainstream media coverage. It's happening again with the Rittenhouse case, which was born in the Kenosha-Wisconsin riots. From the media coverage leading up to the trial, one would think Rittenhouse was a white supremacist militia member who traveled to Kenosha to shoot up peaceful protesters. But as has been widely documented, the case is going poorly for the prosecution he says, while I'm not predicting an outcome, having followed the case carefully, I can say that Rittenhouse is a strong case for self-defense. One of the deceased, Joseph Rosenbaum, was a clearly violent person who had threatened to kill Rittenhouse, chased him down, and went to grab Rittenhouse's rifle when shot. The other dead man, Anthony Huber, was beating Rittenhouse with a skateboard in a swinging manner when shot. Gage Grosskreutz, who was wounded, admitted under cross-examination that he ran after Rittenhouse and closed the gap but denied he was chasing him. And the Rittenhouse only fired on him when Grosskreutz lowered his loaded Glock pistol to point directly at Rittenhouse from three feet away. Most of this evidence came out of the prosecution case. When the defense called him to testify, Kyle Rittenhouse stuck to the same story witnesses told. With trial evidence inconsistent with the news media's narrative, there could have been a major media mea culpa. Instead, headlines and framing continue that pretrial narrative, even if inconvenient facts appear deep down in the articles. As the editors who run these stories and draft the headlines know, many, if not most people, don't get far beyond the headlines and opening paragraphs. So... NBC News breathlessly headlines a news report about the prosecution's forensic pathological, pardon me, about the prosecutor's forensic forensic pathologist testifying that Rosenbaum was in a horizontal position suggesting the victim wasn't a threat when he was gunned down. Now, it's not until the bottom of the article that NBC News acknowledges that same expert testified the wound positioning was consistent with Rosenbaum diving toward Kyle Rittenhouse. Left out of the story was his testimony that gunpowder residue was consistent with Rosenbaum grabbing the muzzle of the gun when he was shot, just as Rittenhouse and witnesses said. The headline highlight of Grosskreutz's testimony, according to a Daily Beast report, was that he tried to surrender to Rittenhouse. Similar misleading narratives frame the cases at the New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, and elsewhere. Reading only these publications, it would, it would be reasonable to believe The original story of Rittenhouse is a shooter run amok, despite the trial testimony to the contrary. From the inception of the police shooting of Jacob Blake to the riots and now to the Rittenhouse trial, media malpractice has framed a Kenosha, Wisconsin narrative completely divorced from reality. That's William Jacobson. Of legalinsurrection.com over the New York Post article entitled The Media Framed Kyle Rittenhouse and Won't Come Clean Even After The Prosecution's Case Falls Apart. Falls Apart. <sighs> wow. I got to tell you. They lie, and they know they lie. They lie on purpose is what I'm trying to say. They project their racism onto you on purpose. They lie on purpose. They do all kinds of things on purpose. Again, remember now that the U.S. CDC has admitted it has no record of even one unvaccinated person spreading COVID after, after recovering from COVID. And that's in response to a Freedom of Information Act request from an attorney. And the great Michael P. Singer over on Twitter says, lawyers are smelling blood in the water. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. So it's going to be interesting. It's really going to be interesting. Oh, by the way, uh, a lot of mainstream media is saying that Joe Biden didn't say what he said yesterday. Uh,
1: You know, I've adopted the attitude of the great Negro at the time, pitcher in the Negro Leagues went on to become a great pitcher in the pros into the Major League Baseball after Jackie Robinson. His name was Satchel Paige.
0: They're saying, oh, uh, Dementia Joe didn't really call him a great Negro. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Now, I don't know if that's racist or not. I can't keep up. I can't keep up. I don't know. You tell me. No idea. No idea. Anyway. NBA star Enos Kanter says NBA officials threatened to ban him for criticizing China. I don't doubt it. He's a center with the Boston Celtics. Turkish born basketball players become incredibly outspoken against the communist dictatorship in China. And not everyone involved with the NBA is happy. During an interview on CNN, Enos Cantor revealed two unnamed NBA officials. Borderline begged him to take off his free Tibet shoes prior to a game and later implied he might be banned for the move. The Celtics. Center asked if he was breaking any rules. The officials admitted he was not. He added the officials later apologize. Furthermore, he revealed... Oh, interesting. Well, they just took it away from me. Security alert. I-, I love it when I get spam when I'm reading something off the uh, internet. Furthermore, he revealed he's... Spoken with NBA commissioner Adam Silver about the situation. It's fascinating. We'll link to the article, which has the full CNN interview on it. But as Daily Caller says, Enos Cantor has guts made of absolute steel. That dude is what a real hero looks like. That's a man who's taking a real stand. He's not Colin Kaepernick who will just say anything for attention. Right? The unfortunate reality of the situation is that this will almost certainly lose Enos Kanter's NBA career for his brutal criticism of China. He's spoken out about human rights violations in the communist dictatorship. China is furious. The NBA has not publicly supported him, which he pointed out in his interview with CNN. Nike and China have an insane amount of influence over the NBA, and I'd be shocked if they didn't flex their muscles against Kanter. Okay, I'm getting a phone call here. Hey, brother, I can't talk right now because I'm doing a live stream slash podcast, but if you uh, send me a yes or a no, that would be great, and I will call you back uh, after I get off the air. Thanks, brother. So, anyway. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Sometimes real life happens. Sometimes real life happens when I'm uh, in the middle of uh – what is this again? Oh. Yeah. Yeah, the Doc Washburn show. Yeah, so sometimes real life happens. Well, that's okay. By the way, a little bit earlier today, the prosecution in the Kyle Rittenhouse case was trying to get lesser offenses included in the jury instructions because they know they have nothing on the central charges because this is clear-cut self-defense, and the judge was not having it. The judge said, nope, not having it. I keep going back to what Daniel Horowitz over at uh, the Blaze Media said, if you have a rhino legislator in a red district with no challenger, even if you can't put together a campaign, just get your name on the ballot. God might bless us with an historic opportunity but in many areas we have no conduit through which to capture a wave election. Cuz I, you know, I know from having done a local radio talk show in Little Rock that my listeners there in Central Arkansas were so furious at their incumbent Rhino US representative French Hill for saying that Donald Trump's rhetoric leading up to January 6 was unforgivable and for voting to keep Liz Cheney in Republican leadership in the House saying she was an outstanding conservative they would vote for Donald Duck over French Hill in a Republican primary in Central Arkansas now, I'm not sure if they vote for Daffy but they would definitely vote for Donald Duck over him no no question Yeah okay they they vote for Daffy also Yeah no 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 that's right That's right now, before we get out of here, I got to share with you, I got to share with you the latest article from the great Julie Kelly over in American Greatness. Uh, she's been on my uh, local radio show before. She's been on with uh, Tucker Carlson and Fox frequently, and she is a true American patriot. Uh, but, but more than that, she's a kind person who speaks up for people who can't speak up for themselves. Her new article, American Greatness, is called Unprecedented Capital Protest Sets New Precedents. And she says unprecedented is the word most often applied to the events of the Capitol on January 6th. In his remarks that afternoon, as the chaos was still ongoing, Joe Biden warned that, quote, Our democracy is under unprecedented attack, unquote. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Attorney General Merrick Garland, and leaders of both political parties also described the four-hour, mostly nonviolent disturbance of the Capitol complex as something without precedent. Republican and Democrat senators in a joint committee report released earlier this year said on January 6, 2021, the world witnessed a violent, an unprecedented attack on the U.S. Capitol, the vice president, members of Congress, and the democratic process. The nation's top military leaders, including Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, said in a statement a week later, quote, we mourn the deaths of the two Capitol policemen and others connected to these unprecedented events, unquote. Of course, we now know that those two officers did not die as a result of the protest. The national news media also flaunts the word with ease and frequency, historical context and common sense be damned. One federal prosecutor who handled the Oklahoma City bombing case, which resulted in the murder of 168 innocent people, including 15 children under the age of five, the New York Times in April that, quote, the Capitol attack was thankfully an unprecedented event. What? Joe Biden's Justice Department argues for unusually harsh sentences on the basis that, quote, the crimes committed on January 6th are unprecedented, unquote. Therefore, the government routinely claims in sentencing motions, judges should ignore precedent for similar offenses. One prosecutor wrote in August of this year, quote, these crimes defy statutorily appropriate comparisons to conduct in other cases that occurred before January 6, 2021, unquote. Long delays in the discovery process are blamed on the So called unprecedented volume of evidence, which includes tens of thousands of hours of video footage and hundreds of thousands of FBI documents, ditto for delayed trial dates. Foot dragging on discovery renders many defense lawyers unable to prepare for trial. Judges repeatedly cite the so called unprecedented nature. Of the Capitol protest and massive trove of evidence as an excuse to stall trial dates until the middle of next year. Portraying January sixth as unprecedented is not an accident. It justifies extra constitutional, judicial, and legislative action under the guise that nothing like this has ever happened before, and that language And that language will rationalize future measures to make sure it never happens again. Nothing is off the table as the Biden regime, Beltway judges, and the media seek to avenge a so-called unprecedented protest in the government building where the only people killed were Trump supporters, including at least one by a federal police officer. Now, defendants are locked up in a political prison, denied bail for their unacceptable views on the 2020 election abused by prison guards, and stripped of human and civil rights before a trial date is even on the books. A post-Enron felony law intended to prevent interference in congressional criminal investigations has instead been applied to at least 230 Americans charged with the preposterous obstruction of an official proceeding offense, even though Congress had recessed before most of them got into the building Offenders who plead guilty to the obstruction will spend years in prison. Low-level misdemeanors such as parading in the Capitol building also result in jail time. Prosecutors refer to nonviolent protesters as domestic terrorists without charging them as such. The presumption of innocence, due process, equal treatment under the law have been torched. Take, for example, the case of Timothy Hale Cusinelli. Arrested on January 17th, Mr. Hale Cusinelli has been detained in the D.C. jail, reserved for January 6th defendants since early February. The Army reservist is not accused of committing a violent crime. He faces no charge related to assault, weapons, or vandalism. Yet Judge Trevor McFadden, a Trump appointee now, has twice granted the Justice Department's request for Mr. Hale Cusinelli's continued pre-trial detention. He's now on his 10th month behind bars, despite having no criminal record at the same time. Judge McFadden has allowed the Justice Department to to delay Hale's trial on numerous occasions. In a scathing motion filed in September, Jonathan Crisp, Hale's attorney, tallied the number of times Judge McFadden agreed to the government's request to exclude time for the speedy trial clock, which is 70 days. Attorney Crisp noted, and I quote, "As as of the date of this pleading and at the government's behest, this honorable court has exempted 221 days from the speedy trial calculation. The speedy trial act has been continually circumvented since Mr. Hale Cusinelli's indictment, and the government is yet again seeking to obviate the efficacy of the act by invoking the same refrain it has provided since March 2021. It has done so while not offering any guarantees their requests will not continue unabated for months or even years. Unquote. Attorney Crisp asked Judge McFadden to honor his word. You see, the judge had previously warned the Justice Department he had no intention of moving Mr. Hale's November 9th trial date. And in fact, he expressed his concern in July that Hale's constitutional rights were under attack. Judge McFadden scolded Assistant U.S. Attorney Catherine Fifield, or Fifield, as the case may be, saying you would not arrest someone, then gather evidence later. That's not how this works. This does not feel like what the Constitution of the Speedy Trial Act envisioned. But Judge McFadden, like every other D.C. District, ju- district Court judge, Handling nearly 700 January 6 cases clearly is unburdened by the fact he is contributing to the flagrant abuse of Hale's constitutional rights. Last month, Judge McFadden, breaking his own promise, moved Hale's trial date from November 9th, 2021 to May of 2022 using pandemic restrictions and spring break schedules as his latest excuse. Judge McFadden still, however, refuses to release him on bond so he'll languish in jail for at least another six months, not having been convicted of anything. The court's newest broadside came this week in another president-setting ruling against Donald Trump. Judge Tanya Chutkin, appointed by Barack Obama in 2014, denied Trump's assertion of executive privilege to keep White House records out of the hands of Pelosi's January 6th select committee. Judge Chutkin wrote in the opening paragraph of a 34-page ruling, quote, this unprecedented attempt to prevent the lawful transfer of power from one administration to the next caused property damage, injuries, and death. And for the first time since the election of 1860, the transfer of, of executive power was distinctly not peaceful, unquote. Siding with Joe Biden, who broke another precedent by twice rejecting Trump's executive privilege claims, Judge Chutkin noted, quote, This case presents the first instance in which a former president asserts executive privilege over records for which the sitting president has refused to assert executive privilege, unquote. Judge Chutkin, who has set new precedents herself by exceeding recommendations made by prosecutors and ordering January 6th trespassers to jail, seemed persuaded by Biden's argument that desperate times require desperate measures. White House counsel Dana Remus wrote in August, Quote, these are unique and extraordinary circumstances. The constitutional protections of executive privilege should not be used to shield from Congress or the public information that reflects a clear and apparent effort to subvert the Constitution itself, unquote. Now that is ironic because they subverted the Constitution when they stole the election. But I digress. The great Julie Kelly, the great Julie Kelly concludes saying, therein, of course, lies the rub. The Constitution, along with every foundational precedent, can be subverted on the grounds that January 6th was unprecedented. Joe Biden the Justice Department of Beltway judges are not simply justified in breaking the rules. They're obligated to do so. And that, unlike January 6th, will be truly unprecedented. Truly unprecedented. Well, I tell you, oh, oh, breaking news. Jen Psaki, White House press secretary, is back and announces that on Monday Biden will meet with his handler, Chinese President Xi. How about that? They're old buddies, you know, old buddies. Well, I tell you, I, um. As we draw today's show to a close, I hope that um, I hope that my team, I hope that my team in the control room here at Doc Washburn Show Central is listening closely because I have a new—I've I, I, never known how to close the show, and so I have a new show closed, and I, I hope that it meets with uh, approval by uh, my wonderful IT team, and it goes something like this. This has been episode number 24 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply tear the roof off of a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansur's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in, ca- in care of Sheriff Mansur Simpier X. And that story it is, Friday, November 12th, 2021. <laughs>